welcome to Beyond the Capital from Supertech. I'm Hilary, we're back, it's 2023, and this series we're going to be exploring how to deal with adversity. I'm going to be talking to entrepreneurs, business leaders about how they've overcome major challenges. Some of them are financial, personal, sometimes about investment, securing funding, launching during a small thing like a pandemic. I'm going to find out how they made it through the ups, the downs, building thriving businesses ultimately and doing it from the regions because this is beyond the capital. It's a podcast series about the professional services tech scene and building those businesses outside of London. I'm Hilary Smith-Allen. In this episode, I spoke to Makalonge, founder and CEO of The Equal Group. He helps businesses identify and eliminate bias in the workplace using data and technology. Thanks for coming along today. Could you start by introducing yourself and telling me a bit about your business? Absolutely. Uh, my name is Makalonge. I'm the CEO of an organisation called The Equal Group. We're a data-driven equality, diversity and inclusion consultancy company. Essentially, we work with organisations to um, equip them on their equality, diversity and inclusion journeys. Where does the data bit come in then? What, what does that really mean for a, a client? Good question. Firstly, when we talk about data, we talk about it in terms of both quantitative and qualitative. So on the quantitative side, it's really looking at numbers, looking at metrics, understanding who's in the organisation, looking at intersectionality as well to understand to what extent the people have multiple characteristics that may um, lead to them feeling disadvantaged within an organisation. And then on the qualitative side, really looking at experiences, understanding what it feels like to be in an organisation and how we link that to people's uh, personal characteristics. So to what extent do you feel like you belong in an organisation? To what extent do you feel supported? You know, how do you see your prospects at promotion and realising your career aspirations? So those are all of the metrics that we look at and really trying to marry both the quantitative and qualitative in order to demonstrate where we need to spend most kind of time and attention. And so using the data and the insights from that then in the context of a client's people strategy, what you know, what are they trying to achieve through engaging with you? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a really, again, a good question. Um, I think sometimes people look at things generically and don't really understand what specifically organisations are trying to do. So one of the things that we work with organisations on is aligning their people strategy to, to who they are as an organisation. You know, I think it's very crucial that companies really understand their values, their own vision, their own mission, and aligning that with what they're doing around the people agenda. So really making sure that people are equipped to, uh, again, align themselves with the values of the organisation, the direction the organisation's going in, and essentially for us, we see data as being a key enabler to make sure that there are no gaps and, and missed opportunities. And what brought you to becoming CEO? And doing that? You've had quite a wide and diverse career to this point. Talk um, me through that. I guess interesting story. So my career started in the energy sector. So I spent 10 years as a regulatory uh, consultant focused mainly on looking at kind of energy and utilities, um, understanding the current regulatory environment, usually working with leadership teams, executive teams to understand what was happening at that time within their business, um, leveraging data, like huge data sets and not to get into the, the minutiae of it, but in the energy sector, we track everything from pipe sizes to meter sizes to line loss factors, efficiencies of pipes and, and pipelines. Um, and that data is all used to identify strategically what um, interventions need to be made looking at kind of the short term, also looking out into the long term. So looking at five, 10, 15 years time. And the, the sector itself is quite 
early in its journey, or at the time it was quite early in its journey regarding diversity and inclusion. So I often found myself in rooms being the only ethnic minority, being the only person that didn't necessarily go to a private school or, or Oxford or Cambridge. And I think it really started to feel a little bit weird to me, especially when I looked at kind of the, the macroeconomic environment, when I looked at the fact that we all are all energy consumers, um, it felt a little bit I'd say weird, but also a little bit disingenuous that the plethora of lived experiences that are within communities aren't necessarily represented in the boardrooms or decision making. The dynamic of the work environment and the consumer, the the customers. Um, So I guess having that observation, I started to have more conversations about diversity and inclusion with leaders that operated within the sector to really understand if this was just me being overly sensitive or if it's something that um, I was super passionate about being from a minoritized background. Um, But the more I spoke to leaders about it, the more I realized that they did see the disparity, they did see the concern and the need for greater levels of diversity, but they didn't necessarily feel equipped to have those conversations. And I really started reflecting on the power of data. As I said, a lot of the decisions that we make in the energy sector are powered by data. But when I looked in kind of the diversity and inclusion space, I found that there wasn't that same robustness in terms of data tracking and, you know, ensuring that strategies were aligning with what the data was telling you and informing you about the the status quo. So that's essentially where the idea came from. In terms of the transition itself, as I said, I, I had more and more conversations with leaders and found that there was a gap and there were was interest in terms of people wanting to feel like they were speaking on data and speaking on metrics rather than kind of getting lost in this ether of, you know, sensitivities, feelings, emotions and that side of things. So did you plan to become an entrepreneur? I've always been interested in business. I don't think I had like a a hard and kind of fast plan to become an entrepreneur. But the more I looked into this space, the more I realised that there there was a gap in the market, the more I realised that it would take some entrepreneurial activity to to actually realise the vision for the equal group. So I wouldn't say it's something that I dreamed of as, as a little boy. But I think over over the years, I have become, I guess, a little bit more switched on to the fact that the entrepreneurial ambition is needed in this space. And what was the transition like then from employee to business owner? Yeah, it was, it was really difficult. The, the 10 years that I spent in the energy sector really did equip me for, for kind of the work that we do now um, in terms of influencing leadership teams, in terms of transforming businesses. But that adjustment in terms of, you know, going from what was a relatively comfortable position as, as an employee, you know, I had the privilege of working in environments where I was well paid and kind of had all of the, the comforts that you, you build up over the lifetime of your career. Uh, moving from that to the instability of not necessarily having clients, not necessarily understanding where your next contract's coming from, not necessarily understanding whether, you know, whether your business idea even makes sense or is, is something that's needed. I think it was quite a turbulent time to to really reconcile with just starting from from ground zero. Um, while I was in the corporate space, I had the privilege of working for, you know, well-known organisations, like internationally well-known organisations. And then when you go into to meetings and conferences, people know the company that you work Gun for. With and brand you, and exactly. You get a little bit of, uh, I guess, recognition and esteem from that. Starting from zero where nobody knows you, nobody knows your organisation is just super humbling. So I think that took some time to adjust to 
And then, yeah, I think one of the things that people often don't promote in terms of entrepreneurialism is that it's it's hard work. It's, it's really hard work. And I think sometimes in the media, social media, there's this glamorization of, of entrepreneurialism and it just isn't as glamorous as, as it appears, you know, working long hours, staying up all night to, to get things done. It does take its toll. It doesn't translate on social media. Don't see, it doesn't. Don't see those still, bits, do you? It wouldn't be the, the most exciting Instagram page to follow. Yeah, how many um, sleepless nights of an entrepreneur exactly. <laughs> your new channel coming out. So there's a lot of hours, hard grind. Is it just you? How so, do you maintain your own well-being? Are there others in the picture? Obviously, being an entrepreneur is a, a full-time sport. It is. Um, so at the moment, we're a team of 16. Um, so there are other people involved in the business. Um, I think for me personally, I've really struggled with getting that work-life balance correct. And as I said, I think the early days of the journey were very, very grind heavy. So a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of hand cranking to make sure that things were getting done. At the moment, we're in a different position where there's not necessarily the same urgency for me to, to kind of work all night and work all, all the hours of the day. But it does take some adjustment. And I think that's something that I've, I've struggled with in terms of moving from a, a one man band, essentially trying to, to, to do everything to now having team members and making sure that everybody's pulling in the right direction. It kind of requires a different skill set. It requires a different level of energy that you bring to certain activities. So for me, really, it's trying to reset that balance in terms of what I do professionally, but also what I do personally to, to kind of re-energise. Do you feel a sense of external pressure around that? Because like you said, that image of the entrepreneur is partly glamorised, but also that you know, if you're not gunning at it 100% of your days, you've almost sold out. I mean, it doesn't, you know, the, the controversy of the two ends of the spectrum there. I, don't, I, don't, I guess I've always been somebody that doesn't necessarily feel external pressure. I think a lot of the pressure that I feel comes from myself and comes from my ambitions and, you know, I'll make no secret of I'm, I'm very ambitious and there's certain things that we want to achieve that I want to achieve through this organisation. I think in terms of the the other pressures, I guess I'm now in a different position than I was when I started personally. So I've had two kids since starting. They require time, they require love and affection and it's just not practical for me to work in the same way as I did at the start of the business versus where I am now. So again, that's taken some adjustment and I'm really starting to hopefully get a little bit better at, at taking time for myself, taking time for my family um, and ensuring that we are, I guess, working in a way that, that is, is kind of family friendly as, as well as getting things done. And do you encourage that within your team then? I like to think I do. I think you'd probably have to ask the team. Um, but we, <laughs> no, but we, that workplace culture that, you know, you've been on your own journey and trying to grapple with that. So how, how do you yeah, absolutely. build so, out so we've from got, there? We've got a number of people that work kind of condensed hours or four-day weeks to, to help them manage the other things that they're dealing with outside of work. I do try to encourage people as much as possible to take time for themselves. We are kind of completely flexible in terms of our, our working hours so if somebody feel, feels that they, they work best in the evenings rather than the mornings they're absolutely free to do that 
we try to have as open a culture as possible. So um, people just communicating what's going on in their lives, what they're dealing with, um, and then we can collectively manage that rather than, you know, when I was in the, the workplace, it was a very rigid, very kind of nine to five mentality, nine to nine in some, some places, some cases. But there wasn't that same flexibility and that's something that we definitely wanted to focus on at the equal group to make sure that people do have that ability to find a work-life balance that, that works for them. I suppose when you're a purpose-led business, as the equal group is, and then also building that culture of a good place to work, which is just frankly good business sense of retention, isn't it? And attracting, you hear a lot more of that now. How easy is it to find people that, you know, see the vision? It has been difficult. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I think we've had people that, that know about the business, know about the brand uh, and want to kind of join, want to, to come on board. But we have to reconcile that the love of the vision, the love of the values, the love of the mission with practically what, what people can bring to the table. And I think sometimes there's a, a little bit of a, a weird dynamic where people feel that they agree with the purpose but they can't necessarily practically help in terms of the, the areas where we need help. I think sometimes it's also been hard to find people that operate at kind of a, what we call a, a sweet spot. So there's a certain kind of competency that comes with management consultancy as a practice. So professional services, the way that you influence organisations, the way that you influence leadership teams, aligning that with the passion for, you know, greater levels of diversity, inclusion, equality. Sometimes people have the passion, don't necessarily have the skills. Sometimes people have the skills, don't necessarily have the passion. So it's quite a, a difficult, difficult position to be in sometimes. We tend to hire for passion primarily because we feel that the skills can be taught over time. But that fundamental passion is, is absolutely paramount. The other kind of difficulty in this space is the, the passion that people say they have versus the passion that they actually have. So um, I think sometimes it's so easy just like to... Getting through the interview, I want a job test. Yeah, a little bit, <laughs> a little bit. But then also, I guess in the last couple of years, we've seen kind of weird things in this space where overnight everybody became an ally. And when you ask people, what, what does allyship mean and what does that look like in practice, people struggle to, to articulate what it is that you do on a day-to-day -day basis that makes you an ally, other than updating your LinkedIn profile to say that you're an ally. And we've ended up in this, this kind of virtue signaling vortex where everybody is is super keen to, to demonstrate how progressive they are and, and how open they are to, to conversations about equality, diversity and inclusion without actually the same energy and the same willingness to, to do the work that needs to, to be done. Yeah, so um, not just being, I'm not a racist, but I am actively anti-racist. Absolutely, absolutely. Moving in. Yeah, and, and there's, there's, again, a lot of kind of, you know, we live in a bit of a weird world when it comes to social media. I think a lot of people, you know, around the time of George Floyd's murder were, posting black squares and, and putting out statements of solidarity. And then when you dig a little bit deeper and understand, you know, what does that actually mean in practice? What are you doing to change either organisations or change mindsets? You're kind of met with blank stares. So we're still in that a little bit where people are keen to shout about what they're doing without really the substance that, that lies behind that. Tricky space. <laughs> Absolutely. Tricky, tricky space. I want to just focus a little bit on the future. What do you hope for from 2023, from you, for the equal group? What's yeah. in the pipeline? So for me, I think I've come to realise that the 
the energy, the skill set, the knowledge that it's taken to build the organisation to where it is um, needs to be built on. And, you know, I, I think I need to spend some time personally developing myself, personally developing my effectiveness as a leader, as an influencer in this space. So over the next kind of six to 12 months, I will be really focusing on, on me, which is slightly selfish, but also very necessary. For the organisation, you know, we're still continuing to work with clients that we've worked with for a number of years. So, so really digging a little bit deeper into making sure that we're able to demonstrate impact, making sure that we're able to um, support organisations in the way that they need to be supported. We've got a, a couple of interesting opportunities coming up with, with organisations that we're super excited to, to be working with, hopefully doing a lot more work in Birmingham. So we're based in Birmingham. But our consultants are completely remote, so we've got consultants in Scotland, London, um, Bristol, so on and so forth. But because our, our home is Birmingham, we're trying to do a little bit more work in and around Birmingham. And then we're also working on a technology platform, so we've been working on that platform for the best part of four years now. We should be in a position in the next couple of months to, to start releasing oh, that that's publicly. exciting for you. Absolutely. And so given that you've got consultants then working remotely all over the UK, yet you have this hub in Birmingham, what's the importance of place there for you? Really good question. Um, I think selfishly and personally, I'm based in Birmingham. So I was born in Liverpool, spent a lot of my life in London, studied in Manchester. And Birmingham's really where I've called home for, for the last seven or eight years. Um, I think there's a lot of potential in Birmingham. We're starting to see some of that with kind of HS2 coming, a lot of redevelopment. We recently saw through the Commonwealth Games just the the positive energy that, that Birmingham brings to the international stage, I think the next couple of years you're going to see Birmingham really grow in significance. I think there's a real opportunity here culturally to ensure that the the social climate is one where everybody can thrive. And I think historically we've seen that there have been tensions between different communities in Birmingham. And I think there's a real opportunity going forward to ensure that we're collectively moving forward cohesively. So as the, the area grows and as more investment comes in, I think it's increasingly important to show on a world stage what social integration, what, you know, collective ambition looks like and, and the extent to which we can engage all communities in the, the development, redevelopment, continued growth of Birmingham. So whilst we have consultants kind of across the, the UK, we're really keen to, to grow our business in Birmingham, from Birmingham. Thank you very much for stopping by and talking to me today. No, thank you for having me. That was Makalonge, founder and CEO of The Equal Group. Thanks for listening. This has been Beyond the Capital from Supertech. I'm Hilary Smith-Allen. Please follow us on Apple, Spotify, whichever is your favourite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed listening, tell your friends and family and give us a rating to help others find the podcast. <laughs>